the staples, my friends. Tonight will be in Amos chapter 2, 3, and hopefully 4. I don't know. It is absolutely wonderful. These minor prophets, uh, as I said last week, again, I want to, I want to reinstate uh, what Herbert Stevenson said. And please, I hope that some of this doesn't get so redundant. You, you kind of want to tune it out because um, a lot of research has gone into the times of these individuals, not a lot of them we know very much about, but God does. But their their message is uh, very, very pointed. We've we've discussed that Amos was a little bit on the side of, of the pointed judgment where you see Hosea was had the bleeding heart of, of, of God for his people, always calling for repentance. And I think that some of if you've known people or have experienced it, uh, a wave-faring mate that you love deeply and care about immensely in love. That's heartbreaking. That is probably one of the most heart-wrenching things you will ever go through. And God used Hosea and Gomer in such a, an instance of the absolute heartbreaking uh, attitude that the Lord has for his people. And yet we see him constantly pleading, come back, come back, come back, and repent. Where Amos is more, um, he's more pointed. Again, Herbert Stevenson writes, again, like other, like, unlike, excuse me, unlike other prophets, Amos was not a man whose life was devoted to hearing and speaking the word of the Lord. In other words, he didn't have a, like a Hosea or a uh, Isaiah or a Jeremiah, a long God called him specifically to go to Bethel, which is which is an important in itself, but to deliver a message. And he was delivering the message to the ten northern tribes, which ultimately will consume all of Israel, all of the, of the twelve tribes. The two tribes of Judah in the south, the ten tribes of Israel in the north. But his message is so pointed uh, that it will eventually uh, consume the whole house of Israel. He writes... Amos, again, was not a man whose life was devoted to hearing and speaking the word of the Lord. He was no product of the school of prophets, nor was he a professional seer or gave his life to this. But he left his flock for a limited period at the command of God to deliver a specific message at Bethel. That done, he presumably returned to his sheep tending and to Koa. So um, I thought that was very interesting because... A lot of these prophets, you know, we tend to think today, we listen to people that uh, have the degrees and have the proven track record and so on and so forth. God can use whom he will. The question is for the church today, do we have people that will answer that call, no matter what? You know, that won't use the excuse that Moses used, I, I'm not eloquent in speech, uh, and so forth. And, and believe me, God used him in a mighty, mighty way. And God can use, he's no respecter of persons. That is a, a tremendous scripture. God is not a respecter of persons. So if he used a Moses, he could use anybody that is ready at a drop of a hat to answer his command. Amos was such a prophet. We want to just really succumb real quick to understanding that there were seven nations surrounding Israel that had this pronouncement. Remember three transgressions and for four? That was basically saying that your, your time for judgment is ripe. And these seven real quick, and this is not including Israel, the ten northern tribes. It includes Judah, but the ten northern tribes will be included in all of this. But Syria, Philistia, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, Judah, and ultimately all of Israel. It's interesting to note that, that Amos was a, about 787 B.C., somewhere around there. They prophesied, much like Hosea, hundreds of years before the Babylonian captivity. Now, in, in Amos, we're looking at this more impending judgment, which the Assyrians wiped out. We'll see a little bit of that tonight. They didn't wipe out all of Israel, but they devastated Israel. And yet we also trace back in the other prophets where there was a king called Sennacherib, and we 
looked at him when we were in Isaiah. The amazing prophecy about that is God controls everything. And the minute prophecy about this, this absolute uh, brutal invader, if you will, of the Assyrians, the Sennacherib came, that was prophesied that he would go right up to Jerusalem and go no further. And that is historical fact. So a lot of these prophets prophesied generally what was going to happen. Amos prophesies here specifically about doom. Three for three transgressions and for four. Time is running out. Judgment is here. And you know, in the, in the times of these minor prophets, people laughed at judgment then. In fact, even Israel kind of turned deaf ears sometimes and took judgment lightly. We have a quote, uh, well, I won't get to it right now, but I think it's, it's great. But anyway, men don't learn from history. Now, judgment's laughed at now. You know, uh, you try to tell somebody the straightforward gospel, it's Christ or judgment, you're going to be laughed at most of the time. It, judgment is a light thing now, just like it was then. So that's where we're, we're coming into the second chapter tonight. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will turn, I will not, excuse me, I did that last week, I will not turn away its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. We don't have time to get into, into this, but you can go through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Zephaniah, 1 Kings, and put together the prophecies of surrounding some of these kings. And God allowed this to happen to not only like, you remember in Jeremiah 14, 15, if you remember, like, for example, the, the fading girdle, remember? How he's told to go to the Euphrates and hide, hide the girdle in the rock. And then he told them a little while later to go get it, and, and it was marred. Remember that, the waistband? Well, God used that as showing this is how Israel has been. It used to be an effectual waistband to me, but now it's, it's, it's dealt with so much idolatry and sin and taken me lightly and forgot me days without number. This is what Israel is like. Remember how he went into the potter's house and the same thing there. Um, so a lot of times that's what God will use in these kings, and that's what the Chronicles are mainly all about. You look at the Chronicles, and they're very detailed uh, accounts of what happened. You can read a lot of what happened to David. You read about him in first. In First Samuel, Second Samuel, you can read in the prophets where, or excuse me, in the Chronicles where it is detailed. God does things specific way, and I love it. And He is precise about His about His way of judgment. We, uh, I just want to real quick remind us as we go through this prophets, <clears throat> the the layout of what's going to happen through the ages real quick, because as we go through this prophet, sometimes it's easy to get lost in their time and in their, their prophecy. Well, their prophecies of judgment and repentance, and if repentance is not headed, judgment is going to be there, is so specific, sometimes it's hard to take these specific prophecies and put them into a broader sense. What's going to happen? You know, in Israel's past history, we have the Joel's prophecy about about the, the dividing up the land and the, the day of the Lord and so forth. You, you know, then we get the uh, the prophecy that Israel is going to be destroyed by, their, by the Assyrians and then how Judah is going to be uh, led captive for seven years in Babylon. Has that already happened? Yes, to fulfillment to the T. What God says is going to happen is going to happen. We talked so much when we were in Isaiah, and forgive me if I have a lot of information tonight, but I'm excited about this. As we, when we were in Isaiah... So much fulfilled prophecy has already happened. What is that guarantee for us? That it is going to be the second part of all God's prophecies or prophecies left unfulfilled are assured to be fulfilled. That's part of our surety, if you will. That's why we must know the word. And we must know what God's done in the past so we can have the confidence and boldness to know what he's going to do in the future. Then we see after Judah was was in in with the Babylonians and in, in with Babylon, we see we see those great Daniel prophecies and everything there about the statues and then in the statue, the big you know the four headed the statue, the head, the shoulder, the waist, and then the legs, and then the bottom, the ten toes, which correlates by the way with the ten kings that are going to come out of the European Federation. But what does it say at the end of that? There was a large stone. That came out and it grew bigger and bigger and bigger and crushed all these things until it fulfilled the earth. Well, in a 
um, an overview, if you will, that is what's going to happen to the end times. So you have all these prophets before the exile prophesying all these things. These came to pass. And one thing, if, if what uh, is so exciting about people like, uh, um, I forget his name. Anyways, I'll mention it. Some of these archaeologists is because they unearth these things. And they give validity to these things that have, that have happened. Then we get into the church age. Okay, So the, the church age comes. So, so Daniel prophesies of when the Messiah is going to come. Okay, Messiah came into Jerusalem, hailed himself as king on exactly the same, the date that was prophesied of him. Jesus showed himself as the king. Four days later, he was crucified, and he rose from the dead. And we all know in 70 AD that the Romans came in. Why was it the Romans? It had to be the Romans. The prophecy fulfilled itself. Because in Daniel's image in Daniel 2, the Roman Empire never, ever really left. It was scattered, it was crushed, it was bruised, but it was always a remnant of flavor, if you will, of it left. It's important. So 70 AD comes along, the church, the, uh, the temple was destroyed, and the Jews were scattered. And it only took just a few short years of comparison prophecy for the Jews to go in every corner of the globe, just like God said they would. Then we get an important part of prophecy is coming in, happened in our life, well, not in my lifetime, but in, in our close proximity, 1948, Israel becomes a nation. May 14th, one day, just like God said it would. That, I believe, as, as we study more of the prophets and closely, that started a prophetic clock ticking. Now, in light of that, in light of what, what's going on around them, in light of, of the, the alignment of the nations now, um, I've been doing a lot of, of reading in different translations, as many translations as I can, uh, good ones, uh, Ezekiel 38 and 39, and, and putting that together. And you'll see the fact that when Israel came into the land, immediately something happened. That was they, they, were, they were encircled, if you will, by a coalition of nations that wanted their demise. And we see that happening today. So the Jews returned to their own land. So 69 weeks out of Daniel's 70th week, 70 week prophecy has run its course. But if you read the prophets, you know that between the 69th and 70th week, there had to be a time interval. This is the time interval we're in right now. The 70th week is going to come. It's called the tribulation period, a seven-year period that's divided in half by three and a half years. The first three and a half years is called the tribulation period. But there's a significant Prophetic view of the last three and a half years. Jeremiah said that is specifically the time of Jacob's trouble. So we know it has to be a seventy-year period, or excuse me, seven-year period, one week, like Daniel uh, prophesied and told us about. But we know by Scripture that this week is divided. So there we have another time limit. Why did Paul and Jesus both talk about this man of sin? When is he coming in here? How do we know what time it is? Well, by Israel coming to the land, and we know when the 70th week does come to view, three and a half years, Israel is going to have, quote-unquote, a false peace. And at the, at, the, at the middle of this seven-year period, this man of sin, which was spoken of not only by the prophets, not only by the Apostle Paul, but Jesus himself, he's going to come into the temple, and he is going to desecrate it by declaring himself, God. And at that specific point, the Bible says that there's another three and a half year period that's going to be an unprecedented time of trouble for Jacob, or in other words, Israel. And so there we have the prophets prophesying not only the coming of Messiah, not only the day of the Lord, but of the restitution, uh, or as David Levy, Levy calls it, the ruin and restoration of Israel. You get in the last three and a half uh, year period, we have the trumpet judgments, we have the bowl judgments. Uh, I believe that the seal judgments, if you remember when we were in Revelation, you have the seal judgments, Revelation 6, followed by the trumpet judgments of Revelation 8, and then you get the bowl judgments of Revelation 15. Well, the last seal, the seven seals, the last, the seventh seal, uh, the angels get handed their trumpets, and you go into each of these progressive dealings that God has, so finally he... Uh, 
he gets down to the, to the bowl judgments, and that's where the wrath is really poured out. But it's interesting to note, according to Daniel 11, again, back in the prophets, during this time, the Antichrist will have his tyrannic rule. And all these things are poured out. Right at the last part of this tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, is three and a half years, something amazing comes. And here's where you and I come in. Revelation 19, that's the second coming of Jesus Christ. And you and I will be with him. That's exciting to me. That just pulls everything together. Right since we've talked so far, we've gone through the prophets. We've seen the day that God is spreading out toward the end of these days. We have the last seven-year uh, period that completes Daniel's 70th week. And guess who is coming back with Christ? It's you and I. Well, what's going to happen? Well, we're going to, as we go through the prophets, that will become plain, especially as we finish the, the prophet Zechariah. We're going to see exactly what's coming out. But I'll tell you what, folks, it is going to be astronomical. You know, I was talking to my wife the other day, and we, we were kind of making a, a, well, we were kind of, we weren't joking. We were very upset. But we know this, this man we've known for years. He's just a wonderful man, but uh, he's a strict woman. Won't listen to the gospel, won't, won't, you know. And we thought, you know what? We thought, Bill, you must be the happiest man in the world. You must be on, on top of everything. You're going to become a god. That's your aspiration. He's gone on missions, you know. Uh, he's, he's gotten married, eternal marriage. He's, he, his aspiration is to be work in, in the temple and, and Salt Lake and he's he's you know he's gonna be because that's what every morning male aspirates to become a God. You know? We are as God once was, we will become as God is now, as there's what they are. And we stopped and we thought, wait a minute. <laughs> that we know is false theology, that we know is not true, but we're a child we're a child of the king. We will we will co reign with Christ He's our inheritance, absolutely, but the Bible says that we are His inheritance. We're going to be coming back with the King of all kings to, to, to justly retribute judgment on the nations, to justly love and show how much He loves His people, Israel. And we're going to be there with Him. We should be the happiest people in the world. Full of joy. And joy is not always having a smile on our face, and you know, but joy is the inner gladness that no matter what happens, we are the king. And he's coming back. He's coming back very, very soon. The prophets are alive and well. Jesus had a lot to say about the prophets. When he was the one that spoke to them. So we have Christ coming back. We have all the seed of Israel, the remnant being saved. That's Zechariah 12 and, and Romans chapter 11. We have the judgment of Gentile nations. Okay? We have the king of blessings of, of seeing an absolute fulfillment of Jesus Christ sitting on the throne of his father David. Wow. And if anybody's ever gotten really astute in biblical prophecy, especially uh, the prophecies that God specifically gave to David, that I will sit one of your descendants upon the throne, and his kingdom will know no end. Well, how could that be? Because Solomon, his son, whom was the seed through, he, he sinned, and the kingdom was divided, on, on, but God had, had mercy on Solomon. He says, I'm not going to do it in your life, but I'm going to tear it from your son. So Rehoboam, his son, takes the, the southern part of the kingdom. Jeroboam takes the other, the ten northern tribes, and there's friction. But God promised David, one of your descendants is going to sit on my throne forever. His kingdom will know no end. That's what Daniel said. His kingdom will know no end. So all these prophetic points, and I, I hope that this is tying things together for you, because I'll tell you, it has just been a fascination uh, for myself that uh, this is all going to come true. Then we have that great, great white throne judgment. And as I've talked about before, and I hope that you keep this in mind, the Bible says that it is so fantastically great that heaven and earth flee away. There's no more room for them, the Bible says. When God is unveiled, 
in his righteous anger and judgment, you know what? Nothing can stand. Nothing. The nations can't stand. The great, the small, all those that are without Christ, that are still in their sin, they are all going to be judged. And it's going to be righteously. And we're going to, you and I are going to witness that. And then after that is over with, Satan is thrown into the lake of fire before that, the end of the, of the thousand years. The great white throne judgment comes in. The great and the small and the dead are judged. They're, they're taken care of. And God says he's going to do something that is, in, in the vernacular of the language, something that I or ear can't even fathom. And that is he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. I'm not going to argue about what's he going to destroy this new earth, or is he going to is he going to rid it all of unevil? I don't know. I can speculate. I have my opinion, but that's just me. God is God. But all I do know is that this is our future. I'm sorry, but I will never sit under a biblical teaching that is not excited about this. I just can't do it, and I won't do it. I would never subject my family nor my wife to somebody that looks at something like this so long. It's not. It is amazing. Thus says the Lord, chapter 2 of Amos, For three transgressions of Moab, and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime, but I will send a fire upon Moab. It shall devour the palaces of Koriath. Moab shall die with tumult, with shouting and trumpet sound. I will cut off the judge from its midst and slay all its princes with him, says the Lord. Look at verse 4. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away its punishment, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. Their lies lead them astray, lies which their fathers followed. Verse 5, But I will send a fire upon Judah and will devour the palaces of Jerusalem. You know, in this, these verses, if Judah was going to be judged, then certainly all Israel will. And here's the reason. They broke God's law, which was directly given to them in Revelation. You know, we will see in a little bit how God pronounced that he loves them. They are his. They're not only the apple of his eye, but he chose them, and we'll get into that in a little bit. We have seen last week and the week before, you know, uh, Gaza, Edom, you know, Damascus, you know, all these, these other places, God was dealing with them pointedly and very abruptly. He says, I'm going to send a fire, and I'm going to deal with them. But Israel is... is not only as a son, but it's, it's, it's placed in a position of responsibility. Not only privilege, but responsibility. And how God treats Israel very severely, as any good father would to any child that severely goes astray. But yet there are his. And that's the, the, the music, if you will, of, of the wonderful pronouncement of these prophets. Most of them were laughed at. Most of them were mocked. Jeremiah was continually slapped. He was put in the stocks. He was lowered in a dungeon. He got to the point where he said, I can't take it anymore. These are my people, and they're constantly laughing at me and slapping me and, and beating me and all that. And then he said, after a little while, I couldn't handle it anymore. It mused in me. I had to speak it out. It was the words of God. That's what happens to somebody that knows Jesus. You can't keep silent for very long, you know. It's got to come out. It is a wonderful uh, understanding that those that don't know God have not a concept of this at all. How could a man like Amos, taken from collecting figs or sycamores, I don't know what a sycamore is, tending sheep, knowing the Lord Jesus, knowing God to a point of intimacy, being called to a certain place, giving a message that was not favorable, and yet he did it. I can't wait to see these prophets. Because I've always asked the Lord to give me a spiritual backbone, no matter what. To stand in this time, the tide, or against the tide, I should say, of the times in which we live. 
you know, to stand, to not cower down, to not, you know, give in, but to stand on the Word of God. And that alone, and if the message is offensive, they better take it up with your Creator. Because I'll tell you folks, what's happening today is the concept of our Creator being our Redeemer is being taken away, you know. So if they have problems with salvation, then, they, then they're going to ultimately have to answer to their Creator. So in verses 4 and 5, uh, I don't think that Judah probably was uh, pleased, if you will, of the pronouncement that, that was not including them or vice versa of Israel against Judah. But you know what? Ultimately, all Israel, Judah and the ten northern tribes, because they were all given the revelation of God's law directly to them that held them very much responsible and accountable. If you look at Romans now, when the day of grace was opened up to the Gentiles as well, you see that, yeah, we got the Jews, because they had the tent, the law written on stones and so forth, yeah, they will be held accountable. You have the moralist, he will be held accountable. You have the naturalist, the guy that looks at the beauty of the world, he will be held accountable. But how God ties it all together and says, you know what, in Romans chapter 2, we're all held accountable because God's law is written within our hearts. And yet, God chooses people for his own election. Wow, that whole idea of election, what we see here all through the minor prophets, now we have people in the church today that get election all messed up. They don't understand election, and they start saying, well, you know, some are elected and some aren't. We get all kinds of different attitudes of election. We know what election is because God says, I am the Lord of God, I change not. We see how he elects, and we're going to see tonight in Deuteronomy how God said, I chose you because... God doesn't choose us because of something we can give to Him. Because we have nothing we can give Him. We are dead in sin. He chooses us, you and me, because He loves us. And He will go to no end. He will chasten us. If you think, like some do today in the church, I, I'm shrouded by such a, 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 an umbrella of grace, I'm safe, I can do whatever I want. That's it's false theology. That is of the devil. Because God chastens those he loves. How many times in the Old and the New Testament he says that? Where do you think that came from? The prophets. Israel. God chastened them. He loved them. He called them. Wow, very exciting. Look at verse 6. That says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel for four, I will not turn away its punishment. Because they sell the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of sandals. They pant after the dust of the earth, which is on the head of the poor. They pervert the way of the humble. A man and his father go into the same girl to defile my holy name. They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Now before we go any further, we have social injustice, religious injustice, moral injustice. These three acts are continually the ring of the prophets. These were not good times for Israel. Think about that. Social injustice. What do we see today? Wow. I, I, I'm not even going to have time for that. Religious injustice? I don't have time for that. I think that comes out in almost every message we preach from this pulpit. Moral injustice. Morals, wow. That, that seems, it used to be such a defined line. When I was growing up, I had a mother and father who believed in morals. It was a definite defined line. You know where you stood. You knew what was moral, what was not moral. Now it's kind of fuzzy, you know. It's, it's hey, it's a day of enlightenment and whatever. God needs no enlightenment. God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So these times of the prophets are just speaking about their times, which I believe in the spirit of prophecy. We have the law of the letter, but we have also the spirit of the law is, is painting a graphic picture of these end times, which they so much prophesy about. We are so ripe in this country for judgment. That's not a popular thing today, but we are. We're ripe. Does God say for three transgressions in America and for four? Is, he, is that what he's saying now? I don't know. I know he's close, but I don't, I don't. Are we right for judgment? 
Where's the morality? Where's the social justice? Where's the religious justice? Where's the power and, and the authority that Jesus gave his church? Where is it? How come only the small remnant have it? Thank God that they do. Thank God the Lord Jesus Christ is grieved over the fact that his church is, is playing with his word. They're playing the harlot, loose and free. They're not standing on his word. He says, I want you to take my word and I want you to deliver it faithfully, just like he said to Jeremiah and the other prophets. So again in verse 6, he's saying to Israel, three transgressions are in his room for four. I'm not going to turn away. He says in verse 7 again, they pant after the dust of the earth. Look at the end of, of verse 7. To defile my holy name. God will not be mocked. For what a man sows, that's how he's going to reap. See, that's what happens when, when transgression gets ripe for judgment by God's people, or God's people that purport to be his people. They profane his name. God is not so holy anymore. God is not so righteous anymore. He's more of a God that judges on a curve. Where does the Bible say that? The Bible does not say that God judges on a curve. God has a standard, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's perfect. He's not going to bend. He's not going to forgive your little white lies. And that's exactly where these people were going. Verse 8 says, They lie down by every altar on clothes taken in pledge and drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Wow. Look at verse 9. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them. Amorites. You can read about them in Genesis 15. God says an amazing thing. He says, For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now God drove them out of Canaan. Listen to what, I, I think I, I, I kind of delve on this last week, but it was so great. God pronounces that, Genesis 15. But listen to what Joshua says in Joshua 24. He says, and quote, I brought you in the land of the Amorites, which dwelt on the other side, Jordan, and they fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, that you might possess their land, and I destroyed them from before you. God did that. And we all know that, that because their sins were full, the cup runneth over, you know, and it's not pretty. He said in verse 9 again, And it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars. He was as strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. This when God does a work, he does a complete work. He destroyed the root, he destroyed the fruit. Verse 10, and also... It was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt. It was I and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. You know, one thing that idolatry and sin produces is arrogancy and pride. It does. Contention. You want to see the contention man? There will always be a root of pride in him. That's what the Bible says. So if you want to be contentious and fight, you better get on your knees before the Lord and have him uproot that pride or you're in serious trouble. God will chastise because he loves you. But God says, I am the one. Let's go back, okay? Let's go back, he says, way back to your beginning. I'm the one that said that my people will be in the land of a stranger captive for 400 years. Did that happen to the uh, uh, Arabs? No. Happened to any other people in the world? No. So we have a specific promise for a specific people. God said this was going to happen. He heard their cry. God delivered them out on wings of eagles, he says, on his shoulders. He carried them through. He led them through the wilderness. He provided everything they needed. And he says, there are people in the land that I am going to destroy. And when their sin gets to overflowing, they're out of here. He did that. That's a fact. Verse 11, I raised up some of your sons as prophets. Some of your young men as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? David Levy says about this, The prophet is forgiving of the word of God 
and the Nazarite for the demonstration of holy living. Jesus was called a Nazarite. Not only was he a Nazarene from, from Nazareth, he was a true Nazarite. That fulfillment of that, if you will, keep your thumb here and go to Numbers chapter 6 real quick, if, if you will. Numbers chapter 6. I believe, I hope I got my... Hope we got my verses right. First eight verses. Uh, chapter 6 of, of Numbers. Now this was one that was a Nazarite that was a separated. It means one separated. It was a person who specifically was completely separated to the Lord. And God, I believe that David Levy was right. I believe that God had the Nazarite to demonstrate by example, by holy living, how God desires people to be consecrated to Him. And it's the same way today. You know, the Apostle Paul didn't say, Hey man, I want to be your leader. You follow me. No, Paul says, follow me because I follow Christ. He's an example. So, number six is, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When either a man or woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite, to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine or vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh grapes and raisins all the days of his separation. He shall eat nothing. And on and on and on. Verse 5, all the days of the vow of a separation, no razor shall come upon his head till the days are fulfilled, and, and so forth. You read this in context of the Word of God, and the Nazarite was simply one that consecrated himself completely from the Lord. You know, if you want to go one step further, it was forbidden, uh, Schofield says, from drinking wine, because in the Bible, the wine is a symbol of joy. His joy came solely from the Lord. It was that much of a separation. Well, Jesus was separated from all things for us, and he was the fulfillment of that. But back in Amos, chapter 2, verse 11, God raised up some prophets, your sons as prophets. He's talking to Israel right now. He's not talking to the nations. He's talking to Israel. Out of the people I love and out of those that I'm, gonna, that I'm wooing back, that are my wayfaring sons, I've even from your own self I raised up my prophets. And some of them I gave as Nazarites. Is it not so, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? Look at verse 12. But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink and commanded the prophets, saying, Do not prophesy. Now I say to you today before we get on much more here, is that not happening today? Hey, you know, don't speak too much on that sin stuff. That's offensive. You know, we can't have that. This is Day of Enlightenment. And uh, we have people, and I'll name names, we have people like Rob Bell, Brian McClan, and so forth, that do just that, that are part of this church that say the judgment isn't coming, that God does not exact His people to live in a way that if I am saved... God expects me, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to submit to Him and live a certain way. I have morals that God wants me to live by. I have a conscience. God speaks to me through His Word, not new revelations. I can't trust anything outside of this Word regarding God. Do you know that? And if you do too, then write yourself up and get off the slippery ground that you're on and get back to judging everything that you read here or whatever by the Word of God. Everything. That's you, that is your moral compass and how to follow God. Munch everything else, your spiritual food. But nowadays, like they said, they commanded the prophet saying, hey, don't prophesy. You know, don't don't speak to us that way. You don't we don't want to be offended. You know? What's that story? Uh, I believe that was Leon that told a while ago about the the uh, you know, the giving of money and the, and the people that had deep pockets or whatever. And, um, I can't remember. I know the gist of it. I never forget anything. The gist of it was, is don't offend. Don't offend those that might be offended and maybe not give so much or, or you know, for another barrage of reasons. Because that separation has been taken away. They don't want you to be separated. That separation is taken away. Relax a little bit. I've been told that, by the way. Relax a little bit. I remember I was going to, uh, Dean and I were going to a fellowship one time, for a very short time, by the way. 
there was a gentleman in there that was an, how do you be an ex-pastor? Young guy, ex-Baptist pastor, he came up to me and said, you know, you're too serious. You're too serious in what you do. Here, here's a, a CD of one of my, my, you know, my past sermons. Listen to this and, and tell me what you think. Well, I should have known because on the front of the CD was a was one of those cartoon pictures of Noah in the Ark. You know, it's the giraffes hanging over here and everybody's smiling and all that. We listened to about 15 minutes of them and threw it away. But this is what I'm saying. Don't be too serious. <laughs> hey, we've talked about many times that seriousness produces joy. That's the devil's lie. This is the other way around. Seriousness. The more serious you are about Christ, the more joy comes out of your life. And these, these people, they're in the midst of saying, I have even sent Nazarites to you, and you have bend, bended to these people, and you have broken that, that separation. Behold, verse 13, I am weighed down by you. Now, can you imagine the Lord being that grieved? Do you know the Holy Spirit, Paul says that we can grieve the Spirit. We can quench His power. In, in the working that he wants to do in his life, but we can grieve him by the continual thraldom that we seem to get ourselves into of sin. But God said to his people as a whole, I'm weighed down by you, as a cart full of sheaves is weighed down. Verse 14, Therefore flight shall perish from the swift, the strong shall not strengthen his power, nor shall the mighty deliver himself. 15, he shall not stand who handles the bow. The swift of foot shall not escape, nor shall he who rides a horse deliver himself. The most courageous men of might shall flee naked in that day, says the Lord. Simply, I have God had permitted himself to endure Israel's sin to the breaking point. You know, the Bible says uh, a couple hundred times that God is long-suffering full of mercy. And yet there is a time that even God is going to judge the nations, judge His people, and it's coming very soon. Now the prophets speak volumes to us today, uh, I believe. You know, the final judgment that he's talking about here, if you take it in context with the rest of the Word of God, was at the hands of the Syrians. This was in, you can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 17. But even God had mercy on his people then, because as we talked about, the Assyrians, which are very known for their cruelty, could have wiped Israel out if God permitted. But he didn't. God had mercy. They still went on their ways, and God sent the lower part of the, of, of, he sent Judah into Babylon for 70 years. God still had mercy. Let them come back with Nehemiah and Ezra. God still had mercy, still had his remnant, still raised up those, those quote-unquote Nazarites, those, those people that were consecrated, the remnant that was, that was consecrated to him, that were his people. We are his people. Are you going to let anybody or anything defile or dilute that? Absolutely not. Nothing is worth that. That's why an unequally yoked marriage, for example, is so devastating. Because you constantly have the influence and the, the tug of emotion and everything else that is not the tug and emotion of one that is committed to Christ. You know? I'm weighed down by you. You know, God is patient as we close up this second chapter. God is patient with the nations. And especially with His people Israel. He waits until He must act in judgment. I can't, I can't emphasize that enough. God is not quick to fly out the handle and just say, that's it. He is long-suffering. I have asked so many times, I'm sure you have in Christian life, Oh, man, the Lord is patient. How much more is going to have to happen in this world? Well, God is never early and God is never late. He's on time all the time. So he's patient with the nations and especially his people Israel. He waits until, again, he must act in judgment. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, He is not willing that any perish, but that all should come to repentance.
He cries out through Isaiah and Isaiah 45 to the whole world. He said, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is none else. Wow. We are dealing with the God of the universe who again spoke in this universe sprang into existence. He has complete control over everything. And at any moment we will be with him for eternity. Paul says, what is this? It's, you know, I've said before, uh, this life is momentary. It is like that. It's over. It, and, but yet what we do in this moment, momentary life is what counts for eternity. What we do in this few brief, short years that we have what is what counts. So why are, why do we why are we wasting it? And and I'm not saying that we are, but if some of you are and you know it, every day is new. Every day is new. You could go forty past years and have wasted your life, and you could come in repentance, and God will restore the years that the locusts supposedly have eaten, and everything will be new, and God can restore that. I don't know how. I don't know how He does it, but He's God. If you've lived most of your life, uh, and some of it you proclaim to be a Christian, but you lived in sin or, or whatever, you know, all you have to do is come to God in heartfelt repentance, get on your knees, ask Him to forgive you and empower you, and He will, and He'll restore everything. I don't understand that. Consequences roll on, yes, but renewed vitality every day. Lamentations chapter 3, was it verse 21? Every morning they're new. And I don't know how God does that, but he's, God, he's the God of the living, not the dead. Remember, the religious leaders you know, questioned Jesus. Jesus said, you err, you do not know the scriptures, nor the power of God. He's not the God of the dead, he's the God of the living. Living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword are these scriptures. Hear this word, chapter 3. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you. O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt. That's twice in the short letter. He has made a mention of this. Very important. That was their beginning of separation. Remember when, when God called Abram out of the land of the earth, Chaldees, he called them out. He said, from you, I'm going to make this nation. From you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. From you is going to come one that's going to be the blesser of all nations. And then they went into captivity. This man came out of, of, of came out of idolatry. This is nothing new. Why did this Christian think that once we're saved, we have we, we have no more temptation of, of sin or idolatry? Or that is a fable. That is a cover up that the, that the devil, I think, is demising to send us into a false sense of security to let down our armor and everything and allow Satan to come into the church. And he has done that through the centuries, and it is so full of hypocrisy and apostasy that it is going to take the angels to separate the wheat from the tares. Hear this word, chapter 3, that the Lord has spoken to you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought you up from the land of Egypt. The whole house. We read Deuteronomy 32 that Israel is the apple of God's eye. He says, you only have I known, verse 2, of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You know, again, the Gentile nations, God's uh, view and is swift. I will send a fire. But to Israel, he's been brought into a place of privilege, a place of responsibility. And so God's indictment is detailed and unsparing. He is going to chastise. Just like, again, a good father with his son, that is, I mean, you know, every son goes astray, or every son errs a little bit. We're talking about a son that goes way off. The more he goes off, the more severe. His father's not going to sit back and go, well, you know, chips fall where they may. It's just a, it's just a, a, a thing. Hopefully I'll get through it. No. And God is, is right for punishing Israel. He says, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. You know, the Christian's election, listen to this, does not negate God's chastening if he lives 
in unconfessed sin. I have sat under so-called pastors for a very short time that have said just the opposite. We are shrouded by such an envelope of grace that we are safe. Let's party with Jesus. Those pastors go down from lack of of, uh, integrity. They go down from adultery. They go down from extramarital affairs. They go down from you name it. Because they have that lax attitude. It's because we are saved in Jesus Christ. We have the license to live in righteousness. We have the license now to live unshackled and free in Christ. That's what it means to be God's people. And Israel should have known this. You read the accounts of, of how Moses went up on the, on the mountain, came down, and the thunderings and the lightnings and, and the tablets of, of stone. And, and the, the fact of Moses being in the presence of God does something for you. They could not look intently at, at his face and so on and so forth. And yet, what did they do when he went up to get the tablets? They were laughing and playing and dancing in idolatry. I spoke to you. I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known. That word known means it has an intimate connotation to it. It has a knowing. It has... Well, Jesus used the same type of reasoning when he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you under my wings as a hen that's brood, but you were unwilling. How I long. Only you have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And then verse 3, a verse that <laughs> I've probably heard more interpretations than anything Can two walk together unless they are agreed? Look at the context there. Israel and God together. God gave the law. Israel promised to to obey. Israel was told time and time again, if you follow me, your kneading trough will never go dry. Your oil will always abound. Your kind will always give calves and so on and so forth. Oh, we will always follow. We will always follow. We get a hint on how finally Joshua at the end of his life said, you cannot do that. You can't follow the Lord and have a foot in idolatry. The God won't have that. You need to confess and come before the Lord and serve him and him alone and leave your idols alone. And then God will come. God and Israel, his chosen nation, Can they walk together unless they're agreed? They aren't walking with God right now. He is ready to judge them. They are not walking together because they aren't agreed. The Christian and his Lord. It's time, Christians, that we stand up. And I thank God at the the examples that have helped me stand when I've been on the the point of tottering. (laughs) You know, sin is deceptive. We dare not call ourselves Christians and not follow Jesus Christ and give him the title of Lord or we're traitors. And if traitors in most countries get the death sentence, how much more should we? Dare call the Lord Jesus Christ our Lord and our Master, and yet live our own lives and do our own things. Continue to lie. Continue to live in anger. Continue to live in lust. Extortion. Continue to to just get away with what we can get away with. We had a friend one time that that came up to see us years and years ago, and he worked for a, a big corporation to help people in their mortgages and all that. We hadn't seen him in, in years. He called us up one day and he said, you know, this is a true story. He says, I, you know, we're going to be passing through there and we want to stop and see you. Great. So we, they stopped and we were talking for a few hours and he looked up at my wife and he said, oh, by the way, he said, uh, I can write this trip off if I, you know, um, try to solicit some business and help you with your, with your mortgage. Uh, so, you know, how's your mortgage doing? She said, fine. Okay, thanks. That's all I need to know. He wrote that whole trip off. The rental car, the the uh, hotel, everything, because he and we said he was a Christian. Our friend, he lied, and that is not right. 
Okay? I don't care if it's right in the eyes of the world. I don't care if it's the right in the eyes of your company. It's not right in the eyes of the Lord. If we're going to call him our Lord and our Master, we better shoot from the heart. And that is what God was so indignant about. And judgment is coming on Israel. And why is this constantly a theme that we need to understand? Well, because if the Lord is faithful to Israel, the Bible says that we as Christians, we don't support the root, but the root supports us. The new covenant was given to Israel first. We enter in as grafted branches, wild branches into the olive tree. The new covenant. But the root of the Abrahamic covenant, the, the blesser and you know the, the promises of a redeemer and the promises of eternal life, the promises of sins being uh, atoned for in the whole shot, but the promise of the new covenant that we read about in in all in Jeremiah thirty one and thirty-three and, and uh, Hebrews eight and so forth was originally given to Israel. So this does pertain to us. If God is faithful to Israel, he is going to be faithful to us. And that's why he says in Jeremiah that if, the, if you can take the stars away, if you can take the, 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 all the celestial happenings, the stars, the sun, and everything else, and the waves from the Lord, if you can take these away, only then will Israel stop being a nation before me forever. It is a promise. Can't you see the fallacy of what's happening in this apostate church? They're underestimating or undermining, excuse me, the faithfulness of God. And these prophets are detailing exactly what God's doing to his people. And it's no different to us. God loves you, and he's going to chasten you if he has to. He's going to get your, your attention because he loves you. Satan would say, oh, wow, you know, you're really in the heat of judgment right now or, or chastising. You know, God must really uh, be pissed off at you. He's not, excuse expressing, but that was just what my wife heard the other day when she was speaking to an individual. God is not. God is angry with the wicked every day. God loves those who have come to him through his son. Jesus said in a very emphatic thing, we all know it, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man from Adam to the last man standing can come to the Father except by me. There is a very, very constricting, narrow way there. And God says, can two walk together unless they agree? I don't think so. There's a lot of frustrated Christians out there that their walk with God is jagged. It's, it's uh, well, it's like David said, I always feel like my moisture is gone from me. I always feel like, like there's an oppression. I, 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 my prayers, I seem like they, they hit the ceiling and bounce down. I, I'm... I just don't feel right, and, and my vitality, I have no spiritual vitality, everything bothers me, and, and so on and so forth, until I've come into the house of my God, and got on my knees and confessed. And then he restored the joy of his salvation. So no, two can't walk together. The only reason why they can walk together, because they are agreed. Let's agree that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's agree that he's master. Let's agree that he is worthy to have every area of our life. And that includes our thought life. What we think about. What we do. And what we think about will ultimately come out in our actions. And that's the telltale sign. I can tell what a lot of people spend their time thinking about, not, not specifically what they think about, but that their thought life is not pleasing to the Lord just by how they live. You cannot go out and have a loose eye to every woman or, or, or you know, cheat on your taxes or what have you and still have your thought life pleasing to the Lord. You just can't do it. But when your thought life is pleasing to Him and you meditate upon His Word, the next thing you know that your actions are you love those that are a little bit unloved. You accept those that are a little bit unaccepted. You know? And so forth. That's what God wants. Look at verse 4. Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out in his den if he has caught nothing? Will a bird fall into a snare on the earth and there is no room to trap for it? By the way, these verses, some of these verses, are a continual reasoning of verse 3. 
Look at verse 6. If a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? You don't have a bird that falls into a snare when there is no trap. <laughs> you know? You don't have a lion roaring continually in the forest at night if he has no prey. Because the two must be in agreement. That's the way God set it up. God called you to be His. If I am Lord, Jesus said, why not do the things that I say? Israel was constantly going astray. You know, Jesus said an amazing thing, and, and, I, and I'll tell you, this is powerful. When, when Peter came up to him, he said, Lord, how many times do I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? And Jesus said, I tell you, not seven times, but seven times, 70 times. In other words, if your brother comes to you in confession, forgive him. That's long-suffering. That's loving-kindness. And this is exactly how God is treating his people. And we'll see that as and the reason why sometimes I begin these, these studies going through the times of the early prophecies all up to the time of the, of the millennium is that Israel is going to see its most severest persecution in the time of Jacob's trouble. That last three and a half years, Israel will be persecuted like never before. I mean, uh, there's stories now that make me weep about anti-Semitic uh, people and nations and what they've done to the Jews. That is nothing compared to that last three and a half very intense years. Has God done with Israel? Is he punishing them because, hey, you know what? They deserve it. No, God is saving the spiritual remnant of Israel. He's cleansing them. And we'll read when we get to Zechariah, most tenderly, he's going to bring them in under his rod of judgment, and he's going to cleanse them just like a mother would, would wash her newborn. You know, and, and take every careful, you know, every little bit of wax or dirt, you know. And, and I saw my wife do it. She was wonderful. You know, and I'm sure, you know, you know how it is as a mother, when you wash your, you know. And that's exactly the, the, the type of language God uses when he brings his, he's going to wash them, judge them, and, and, and wash them under, under his, his care and his concern. And he's going to bring them in. And Israel is going to have its greatest exaltation in the millennial kingdom of his, their father, David. I think I'll end there. Um, next week, when we start in verse 7, I love this. Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. God has warned and shown in his word what he's doing. In his absolute faithfulness, are we listening to it? Or do we just, uh, well, you know, I want to end tonight with a part of scripture that I, I use uh, primarily as my defense against those people that say Israel is over or whatever, um, or they try to mesh the promises of the church with Israel or vice versa. Wonderful piece of, of, of scripture here. It's in Jeremiah. I read it many times, chapter 31. So if you want to turn there, we'll end there tonight. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You see how we were, when we were in Amos earlier tonight, Judah's getting judged, but yet also Israel. The both of them in the end times will be brought together. There is no such thing as the ten lost tribes or the two lost tribes. Well, God has everything in control. All of Israel will be saved. But he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Verse 32, Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and lead them out 
of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. Look at verse 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. And look at the look at the I wills. I will put my law in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now, the, the phrase, my people, is exclusively used for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the seed thereafter, exclusively in the Word of God, especially in the prophets. But listen to this. So he says, I will, I will twice in verse 33. Verse 34, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now this is the house of Israel we're talking about here. Okay, Verse 35, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. Verse 36, if those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Forever. Verse 37, that says the Lord, if heaven can be measured and the foundations of the earth search out beneath, if they can be that, I will cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. Who can measure out the span of heaven? Let's get real. That's ridiculous. But God uses that ridiculousness to show the infallibility of his word and the immutability of his faithfulness. God has said not only of the waves and the sun and the stars, he's saying, let's go a little bit further than that. If you can measure the span of heaven, then and only then I will cause Israel to quit being a nation for me forever. You go to Genesis 12, 15, and 17, you see what he talks to Abraham. He always finishes it with forever. God's promises are eternal. And therefore, when we go to the New Testament and they see, I am born in Jesus Christ, I am His forever. I have been grafted in to the olive tree. Is it going to be any wonder that God can take the natural branches and graft them into His natural olive tree? Wow. And Father, I thank you for this evening. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the excitement that it brings. And Lord, nothing is too hard or difficult for you. And Father, I pray that we would search the scriptures to see that these things are so. That we would be Bereans, Lord, not simply taking word, the word of, of the great apostle Paul or whoever, but that we would hear it gladly and go back and search the scriptures again to see if these things are so. And I pray that we would have the joy of the Lord, which, which is our strength. And thank you again for deceiving these people. Um, you're just a wonderment. We love you and thank you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.